Living people are killed for their organs. Executions were shifted from the courtroom to the operation room. 16 years ago, the first whistleblowers emerged from China with a story that few could believe. The Chinese regime was killing prisoners of conscience for their organs. Organ harvesting turned the previous persecution form of torturing to death into a profitable business. Today, I sit down with Dr. Torsten Trey, co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting, which just released a special report on the issue. If the Chinese government is willing to kill people on an industrial level, you think of what mindset is that? We didn't react to it in time, probably because we, we thought China is so far away, and a few years later, you are hit by a pandemic that is spread from China. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Janja Kjellek. Dr. Torsten Trey, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Well, thank you for having me. You know, Dr. Trey, this has been a long time coming. I remember back in 2006 when I first realized that this murder for organs industry in China was real, and I started reporting on it. There was a small nonprofit that began in the same year called Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting. And you were one of the co-founders. Um, and we've interacted in various ways over the years. Before we go any further, just lay it out for me. What is this, what you call forced organ harvesting? Yeah, forced organ harvesting is, is a practice that actually in, in 2006, nobody actually would think it could happen. We created this name. It was our NGO that came up with this term. It is the forceful uh, extraction of organs used for transplantation. The typical way of giving a consent before you uh, donate an organ, that has been bypassed. People are actually killed. Living people are killed for their organs. And um, I think it's fair to say that uh, it only happens in China because in a, in a large scale it can only occur when the state is kind of promoting this, this crime. And it has reached industrial level. This is arguably the, the biggest violation of medical ethics in history. And unbelievable when you frame it that way. Well, let, let's go back a little bit. Why don't you just tell me where this came from, where this idea to start this nonprofit came from, why it was needed, and why in 2006? Yeah, in, in 2006, I learned from a newspaper, the Epoch Times, that um, witnesses from China came forward. They witnessed how, in a, in a hospital in Sujetun, organs or tissues were harvested from Falun Gong practitioners. That was so outrageous that it caught my attention. And in the, just in that month, March of 2006, there were actually three people coming forward, a reporter, the wife of a surgeon who took uh, corneas from, from Falun Gong practitioners, and an anonymous uh, military doctor, veteran military doctor, who, who added even more details. It was beyond my imagination. I could hardly believe it. And uh, I followed this case. And then two months later, I saw that um, the, the vice president of the European Parliament, Edward McMillan Scott, he went to, he followed that case too. He went to China. He met with two Falun Gong practitioners who told him that they saw a friend who died in detention who had holes in the body. 
And that was another piece of evidence that came together. Two months later, I heard about the report from David Kilgore and uh, David uh, Matters, uh, who conducted uh, phone interviews with hospitals in China. And they indeed recorded that uh, doctors in the Chinese hospitals said they, they take organs from Falun Gong practitioners because those are fresh organs. So at that time, this was very shocking. And uh, I decided to go in uh, July 2006 to uh, attend the World Transplant Congress in Boston. And uh, I was thinking maybe I, I find some more hints. So there were, of course, doctors also from China. And I, uh, I talked to two of them. One of them, he was from, uh, from the Tianjin Hospital. He said last year they performed 2,000 liver transplantations. And that was an astronomical number. So I, I asked other doctors from other countries. In Argentina, they performed 200 liver transplants per year. In Germany, there were, uh, I believe it was 700 uh, transplants per year. And here we are in just from one hospital in Tianjin, uh, th they performed 2,000 liver transplants. So that was adding another factor to the scope of transplantations that took place in China. And uh, at last, I, I talked to um, a doctor who was invited back to China to open a transplant department. But he, at that time, he was actually just working in a, in a university in Germany, and he only conducted transplants on animals. So I was wondering, how come that, that uh, he was invited back to China to open a transplant department? And he said there was just this de uh, demand to open transplant departments. And I said, where, where do all those organs come from? Because uh, transplantation depends on organs from donors. And he, he said those organs are coming from Falun Gong practitioners. So at that point, uh, and that took all place within half a year, all these aspects, hints and pieces of evidence, and what what was really striking was none of these witnesses were Falun Gong practitioners. And they were all hinting that organs were harvested from Falun Gong practitioners. So if you want some um, objectivity, here you have it. So at that point, uh, I decided there must be uh, more investigation and, and uh, yeah, awareness. And I decided, well, just my voice is not big enough. If I want really attention, I would need to, uh, to start an NGO. And that's how the idea of founding uh, Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting came about. You know, it might be amazing to people that are listening that a doctor from China admitted to you that these organs were coming from Falun Gong practitioners. Now, the context of this is that you know, this was a group that had been de demonized and targeted for eradication. In the words of Jiang Zemin, it, was, it had been the dictator at the time and issued the order. So it's possible for someone to say something like that with a straight face or just imagine, not realize that how utterly barbaric it might sound. I mean, what, how, how did you react to that? Uh, definitely, it's barbaric. It is unfathomable. And... Um... I would think that 
because of th the, this practice being beyond our imagination, that that was the best way to hide the practice. When I uh, was um, discussing this topic with other doctors at medical conferences, they were listening and uh, they were also seeing what data we produce and show. But at the end, they still said they can hardly believe this, this is happening because it is beyond what we in the West would think is possible. It's just beyond our thinking. So why don't you give me a broad picture of the kind of lines of evidence that exist? And this has developed substantially since 2006. Um, that, that document the reality of this? This uh, question of uh, evidence, you know, what evidence you have, th this question comes up very often. If you want to get a uh, short summary of this, there's evidence related to the transplant numbers, evidence related to the uh, organ source, where the organs come from, how they are donated, and then uh, witnesses coming forth. So. Over the time, we followed the numbers of transplants, and the, the transplant numbers in China are just out of proportion. If you follow the course of uh, transplant, annual transplant numbers and compare it with other countries, then you see in China th this is almost like a roller coaster. It's go it goes up, it goes down, it stays on a level for 10 years, it goes up again. You do not find this type of development in other countries that are based on ethical organ donation. In other countries, you find like a steady, gradual increase of organ donors, and then also transplants. But in, in China, the, this seems to be decoupled. Just recently in 2020, you see this example that a doctor team wanted to perform a, a double lung transplant on a COVID patient. And then just within one day, they said they, they got the matching lung and performed the transplant. This is unthinkable in a, in a Western uh, transplant um, um, environment. So the, it seems like organs are coming for, from on demand to facilitate transplants on demand. So the wait time in, in China is usually just considered between two days and uh, 14 days. Um, it's very typical. There was um, a, tra uh, um, a camera team from uh, Korea southern Korea that went with a hidden camera to uh, one of these hospitals. And they filmed a, uh, a nurse that, who was accommodating patients from Korea. And the nurse was saying, yeah, usually it takes two weeks uh, to get a kidney. But if you pay uh, $10,000 extra, you can get it within two days. And this is unheard of, that just because of uh, an extra money you pay for an extra fee, you can accelerate the wait time and accelerate it to two days. So nothing in terms of transplantation numbers is kind of uh, re reflecting anything that you see in, in all other countries in the world. So th this is one part, the transplant numbers, uh, the wait times, um, but then also the donor numbers. Um, we monitored a website where the numbers of organ donations were uh, displayed. And we monitored this for 18 months, over 18 months. What we saw is that there was a gradual, very slow increase of uh, registered organ donors. 
And then all of a sudden, on, at the end of 2015, within one day, it increased by 25,000, exactly 25,000, which is unheard of. It seems to me to be like an artificial number where uh, it said, oh, we, we just add to exactly 25,000, ending with three zeros. Yeah, these are registered org donors are real persons. So just the, the, the fact that all of a sudden there are exactly 1,000 uh, registered donors is, is unheard of. And we, we saw this again in, in the following year when 88,000 uh, people were added to the so-called registered um, uh, organ donor pool. So all of this you don't find in other, in other countries. With other research, you, you saw that, um, that these numbers are more manufactured. There were no, no real organ donors, but the numbers were following a, a mathematical equation. Yeah, a quadratic equation. I yeah. remember reading that paper, yeah. like a perfect quadratic yeah. equation. Yeah, yeah. So, at, and then the, the, with this discrepancy between um, these large tons of numbers and the, the lack of organ donors, um, then the question is, where, where do those organs come from? And uh, th this is where the witnesses... So I, I talked with uh, Falun Gong practitioners who said they were detained uh, for two years and they were blood tested for 10 times. Uh, David Matters interviewed a, a prisoner who was not a Falun Gong practitioner. He said he was not blood tested, but he saw that Falun Gong practitioners are blood tested. So uh, if you hear one witness talking, uh, one Falun Gong practitioner saying he was uh, subject to forced medical exams while in detention, while being subject to torture, which itself is already implausible. If there's one Falun Gong practitioner saying he was medically examined, you can say it's an anecdote. But if there are hundreds and thousands of Falun Gong practitioners over 20 years who keep repeating this and similar experiences, who, who said that I was threatened, the, the policeman said, if I don't follow this, they will take my organs. If you hear this many uh, witness reports, then it, the anecdote is not an anecdote anymore. It becomes an evidence. So if you take all of this together, then you have an overwhelming uh, set of circumstantial evidence. Yeah, each, each piece itself might not be that strong, but if you put everything together, then, then you can say there's enough evidence to say something is, is wrong here. So, you know, obviously the Chinese communist regime has been you know, accused multiple times of these practices. How have they responded? Well, in, in one case for, with Sujetun, uh, they didn't respond at all when the claim was made. They were silent for five weeks, and then all of a sudden they say, oh, now a delegation can, uh, is, is being invited. And of course, the delegation after uh, five weeks did not find anything. Yeah, so this is typical. If you have scheduled inspections, for sure you will not find anything. W what China is not doing is it is not allowing 
um, unscheduled investigation or inspections. Uh, it is um, basically denying uh, that this is happening. If you want, you can compare it with the uh, 1989 student massacre on Tiananmen Square. The Chinese government says it didn't happen, although there's footage, but it didn't happen. And same with the forced organ harvesting from um, Falun Gong prisoners of conscience is also denied that this is not happening. Why is it the Falun Gong that were particularly targeted or are? Well, for, for once, it is um, a large group that is detained. So you have all of a sudden access to a very large pool of organ donors. Not organ donors, but uh, sources, organ sources. That, that's one aspect. But uh, you can also argue that other groups, other prisoners of conscience could also be targeted. So those are not typically targeted. Uh, it is mainly Falun Gong, and um, if you want to look into the reason, then you have to look into 1999 when a persecution of Falun Gong started, and um, the, the Chinese government overnight basically declared Falun Gong as a state enemy. But it was not the fault of uh, Falun Gong because nothing has changed in their, in their practice, but it was just the... The, the aspect of, for example, being truthful, which imposed a threat, a perceived threat to the Chinese government. So uh, at that point, the former head of state, uh, Jiang Zemin, he overnight, he just single-handedly said, this group is now banned and basically has no rights. Now, the experience with the uh, student massacre showed the Chinese government that it cannot just crack down on a group uh, with high intensity because then the, uh, the international community will respond to it. So they had to come up with a different approach. Um, so they, they wanted to destroy this group, uh, Falun Gong, but in a way that it is not raising international attention. So over time, basically the executions were shifted from the courtroom to the operation room. Organ harvesting uh, turned the, the previous um, persecution form of torturing or torturing to death into a profitable business. The organs from Falun Gong practitioners could be sold for transplants. So there, there was a financial aspect that, uh, that was used by the Chinese government. They want to eradicate this group, they want to destroy, and what, what, uh, what better way could there be than, than uh, using Falun Gong practitioners as organ source? You know, I, I was talking with Ethan Gutman perhaps half a year ago, he's one of the researchers who did a lot of really valuable work in you know, basically developing the set of evidence and so forth. In past years, as the Chinese regime ramped up the, the, basically the genocide of the Uyghur people, he's saying that this has become a significant group in recent years. It struck me as something where like, if you don't deal with something over years, it, it doesn't stop. It just will get transferred to another group that's targeted for eradication. Yeah, this is a very typical phenomenon if you violate ethical standards and you get away with it, then you get the appetite to go to the, to the next level, to go to the next profitable area. 
for example, if you, for the, the Uyghur group, because Muslims, they don't eat certain food. So you find um, people from the Middle East who are specifically looking for Muslim organ donors to, to get the, the type of organs that they prefer. The, uh, China followed this market to open the Uyghur people to serve this group of transplant tourists who are looking for specific organs. But um, we cannot forget that <clears throat> this is a relative uh, speaking a smaller group, whereas um, the Falun Gong practitioners estimated to have 70 to 100 million people in 1999. So it's, it's a va uh, extremely large group. And um, because it is persecuted in the whole country, you, you have a pool of organ donors that can still serve the, the transplant hospitals in, in the different regions. So we, we cannot shift our attention to just one group while the other group that has been subject to forced organ harvesting for 20 years is being kind of sidelined. This is a very dangerous move. Do you, do you feel that's happening somehow? You find in uh, certain organizations, for example, the World Medical Association, came up with a, uh, with a statement, resolution, where it acknowledges the genocide of Uyghur people. However, so far, Falun Gong, who is subject to this uh, destruction over 20 years, has not been uh, recognized as a victim to genocide. Yeah, I followed this very closely, and we, we think there's a, an imbalance. One of the things I wrote about years ago was sort of the inability of people to just accept that human beings do such terrible things. You know, I was citing Jan Karski, who, you know, broke into uh, concentration camps in Poland, he was a Polish nobleman, masqueraded as a Ukrainian guard, you know, saw what was happening, got out, went to England, went to the West, to the US, tried to tell people people wouldn't listen. Even the Attorney General of the US said, I think famously, it's not that I thought he was lying, it was that I was unable to believe him. That was, I believe, the official line or something close to that. So how much does this figure into you know, the current state where essentially the Chinese Communist Party has been largely held unaccountable to this in almost any way, with a few exceptions? Yeah. I believe that um, there are several factors that come into play. One is that the crime is just too unbelievable, too, it's uh, beyond what we can fathom. But at the same time, um, it is probably also an effect of the effort of the Chinese government to cover it up. So you, you can imagine forced organ harvesting, the killing of people for their organs. This is a serious crime. It's probably the most outrageous violation of human rights that one can imagine. Not only you're, you're killing people, but you are also using their organs to make a profit. So you can imagine that if this would surface, if this would be reported in the mainstream media, 
China would have a hard time to stop an international outcry. So, of course, China tries everything to stop, uh, to stop this issue, to use bribery, to use um, other influence, to stop newspapers uh, um, from reporting about this issue. Specifically on this topic of forced organ harvesting, we have an issue of um, self-censorship of Western media. And this, we, we need to look into this because uh, the, the, the crime is just too big to be censored. It's striking to me that, uh, for example, the Transplantation Society, which is the premier global organization focused on organ transplantation, has either not taken a position or you know, essentially taken a position that mirrors that of the Chinese Communist Party in this. I mean, I guess the question is, one is, how much has that hurt your advocacy efforts? And two, what's going on with that? Yeah, this, this is a discrepancy that I follow for some time. On the one side, um, the Transplantation Society says they are in a professional society and uh, they don't have the resources to investigate in China. On the other side, the Transportation Society also makes statements that uh, China's on the right way. So on one side, you, you say that you cannot investigate this topic, and on the other side, you, you uh, produce statements that uh, China is developing in the right way. There are several uh, reports, investiga investigations that are admittedly like hundreds of pages long, but I don't know if, if the Transportation Society or the leadership in the Transportation Society has really studied those reports and looked into it. Well, for example, the China Tribunal, which comes to mind, I mean, one of, I think, the most comprehensive body of evidence, right? I believe you testified there. Briefly tell me, what was that? What were the conclusions? And yes, why is the Transplantation Society unaware of the findings? So the, the China Tribunal took, I think, about a year to review all the, uh, the different reports. They listened to 50 experts on, in, in two hearings. So it was a very um, objective, independent, and thorough review of the evidence. And they came up with the conclusion that forced organ harvesting takes place in China and that the main uh, victim group are Falun Gong practitioners. There was a very clear conclusion. It is striking to me that um, other medical organizations have not taken this into consideration and said, well, maybe we need to look into this. Because again, this is one of the biggest violation of medical ethics and of the medical practice, I believe, in history. So you, you cannot go just to back to business as usual and continue exchange, scientific exchange, and exchange with personnel, with doctors, uh, in, with, uh, with China. There should be some pause to, to review the, the, the evidence.
one thing that strikes me, I just, I always remember back to um, where Dr. Jakob Levy, I think who at the time was the head of the Israeli Transplant Association, he had a patient that told him, I'm going to China to get an organ. He went, he got it quickly, and Levy recognized there was no way this could be ethical and actually advocated very quickly for laws to be passed in Israel where the state health system wouldn't pay for such transplants, basically discouraging people from doing it, right? You know, maybe you can tell me, has there been significant response from any country other than, I mean, Israel's the one that I'm, that comes to mind right now, but I'm not aware of a lot of examples. There has been some acknowledgement and response. Um, the U.S. Congress has passed several resolutions on this topic, acknowledging the forced organ harvesting, the European Parliament as well. But um, those are more non-binding uh, steps. This is more like a statement, an acknowledgement, but without taking really uh, a responsibility to stop to stop this uh, abuse, to stop this transplant abuse. It is not um, strong enough to really send a signal to China and say, we are, we are serious on this topic, stop it. We know it, it is happening. It doesn't fit into the international uh, community. And we, we observed over time that uh, this is not only happening in, in, in governments, but also in, in uh, organizations where the information that we provided on this topic uh, is kind of blocked at a certain level. And this is, I would think, that is, uh, occurs at the leadership level. So the, the, the members of an organization, they are much more open to the information and willing to take steps. For example, we approached once the um, American Medical Association. We were working together with the Medical Society of uh, Washington, D.C., and we submitted a resolution. And uh, the leadership of the American Medical Association was more hesitant. But then at one point, the House of Delegates, which are more on the level of the members, they were bringing up this question and said, we want clarity. Those are the doctors that, uh, that really want to know what is going on. The members on the floor, they were really lo looking into answers. They wanted answers. So that's a very typical phenomenon. The block is happening at the leadership level. And I assume that this is also a reflection of the pressure and the influence that from, comes from the Chinese government. It can, it can happen very quickly where the Chinese government says, if do you want to come to our country for certain conferences, then don't bring it up. Do you want to uh, be ostracized from our conferences, then don't bring it up. This can happen very quickly. I'm gonna deviate a little bit here, but I can't help but think this kind of mirrors some of this catastrophic response that, frankly, the world had to the COVID, to COVID. Um, um, you know, they, it's almost like what, you, what you're describing, you know, kind of set the stage for what we saw happen at a much larger scale, affecting a much larger group of people, essentially, like almost, you know, all, all, all of humanity to some extent. It's a, it's a chilling thought. I don't know if you've thought about this at all, but. Oh, yes, yes. Um, 
it is interesting. If you, if you have somebody who's uh, violating ethical standards, just basic standards, uh, and you don't react to it, if you think about it, if the Chinese government is willing to kill people, not only a few, but on an industrial level, hundreds of thousands, most likely more than a million people over the past 20 years, you think of what mindset is that? And if they do this to their own people, what do you think would the Chinese government do to foreigners? So this is a situation we, we didn't react to it in time, probably because we, we thought, uh, oh, this China is so far away, why should we care? You know, why should we care? And a few years later, you are hit by a pandemic that is spread from China. So I, I can't help thinking about this, that, you know, basically, we as a society allowed for or turned a blind eye to for decades what you describe as the grossest violation of medical, medical ethics in history. And, you know, over the last few years, we found ourselves in a situation where there are rampant medical ethics violations. And I can't help but wonder if our turning a blind eye didn't somehow influence this current situation where, you know, trust in the medical system has been lost to such a huge number of the people. There's an interesting aspect to it. By being a bystander, allowing China to, to commit this forced organ harvesting, it is um, that um, in the West, I think some of our uh, due diligence in, in ethics has deteriorated a little bit. And that is, that is a danger, but I would actually uh, say that is also the intention from the Chinese government to, to influence the Western society by you know, making forced organ harvesting like a, a staple in the in transplant field. So it's, we are risking that our ethical standards are decaying. And so all of a sudden we are facing now this situation with the pandemic that really uh, caught us by surprise, where decades and centuries of scientific working have been cast out. Yeah, for example, if you have a vaccine, the typical form is that you have to test uh, a vaccine for 10 years, but to make sure that, this, uh, that there are no side effects. This has been uh, not appreciated. So I wonder if you give a vaccine that you tested half a year, how can you say with uh, certainty that if you give it to children, that it doesn't have effects in 10, 20 years, maybe causing cancer and other problems. We don't know. So there's a decay in, in our uh, due diligence to enforce um, scientific procedures. And uh, it's, it is based on, on, uh, on um, um, appreciation of ethics. Ethics is a good, gives you a good guideline to apply scientific uh, methods. This is chilling. I mean, this, you're, you're basically telling me that this is actually part of the CCP's game here, is to undermine our whole ethical system, and which can lead to results like we're seeing here. I 
you know, I, I'm in the middle of this, and frankly, I hadn't thought of it that way, okay, until this moment. Yeah, I, I had many years to think about why the Chinese government is doing this, and uh, I think to summarize it, you you can come up with uh, three reasons. One is, uh, of um, of course, to um, to be become a leader in the transplant field. Why is it so important? Because if you're a leader in a transplant field, if you if you are the most advanced in the transplant research because you have the, the numbers to produce and you can do research, then you are in the position that you can set standards. And that, that's what the one aspect that the CCP is pursuing, to become a leader so that it can send, set standards for the transplant field. Think about it. Today, we would not think that um, we could take organs from uh, uh, prisoners. You know, it's unfathomable. The WMA, the World Medical Association, has condemned this. But think of that uh, if uh, the Chinese transplant market is so big that it can set the standard, it could even say, uh, no, it is, it is okay if you take organs from prisoners. Yeah, so th this is something that uh, the Chinese government pursues. They, they want to become a leader in the field so that they can s set the rules. Another aspect is that they, there's a side of, in a way, a side effect that by uh, doing, um, uh, by performing forced organ harvesting, they know they undermine the Western concepts of uh, ethics and human rights. And they know that they will provoke the West. This is predictable. And they do this because they, they want to create this kind of chaos in the scientific field, in the transplant field. So now you, you, you have discussions where some doctors uh, may say, uh, you cannot do that, but others say, why not? Yeah, so all of a sudden, we, we are having a discussion that we didn't have like years ago. And um, if you think of the, the, the Chinese government is taking advantage of this, this chaos. Yeah? Think of like if a, a fish can only survive in water and the Chinese Communist Party, they need chaos to, in the world to be dominant. So th this, is an, this is an aspect to it. A third uh, reason why I believe post-organ harvesting in China takes place and has reached these dimensions is the in, in, intention to destroy Falun Gong. You must have some really low days when you're faced with all these realities. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I can see you're, you're you know, trying to keep a light heart through all this, but this is, this is very tough. Tell me, like, what you see hope here, what's the situation? Probably the most discouraging for me was when I heard um, doctors in the, in the West, in the free world, who are taking the side of the Chinese government, were trivializing post-organ harvesting. There, there was a case where a doctor, uh, uh, within 24 hours, organized to uh, to, to have two liver, donor livers. And we would say this is like impossible within 24 hours to, to find two matching livers. But then the, the doctor, the Western doctors here uh, in the US, he said, why not, it's possible. 
you know, that by coincidence, the same two people, uh, the two people with matching organs deceased and organs were available. Yeah, so, so this is um, discouraging because in a, in a proverb you can say, if you hear um, hoofbeat, then uh, the first thing that came to your mind is those must be horses, not zebras. Yeah, this is a very common uh, phrase in the uh, in the medical diagnostic. Uh, it is a reminder that you, you think of what is most likely, and it is not most likely that by coincidence two people passed away donating two matching organs. It's probably one of the most painful moments if you if you see this. But at the same time, the most encouraging and maybe joyful moments were when you talk to other doctors, colleagues, and they understand it and they support you. I, one of them, he, he said he, he read my book and he couldn't stop reading it. Uh, he, he was reading the book until 3 or 4 a.m. through the night because he couldn't put it out of his hands. And he was very supportive. So th those, moments that, those moments are really energizing and give the motivation to continue. I'm guess you might be talking about the book State Organs, which you edited, wrote a chapter of. Um, very, very valuable book to me, I think, back from back in 2012 or something around that time. Um, I'd recommend it to our, to our viewers. You know, you've written quite a number of papers. You've written a couple of books on this. What would you say is the most important thing you've contributed? Yeah, I think that um, there was one article that was probably most consequential in putting this whole picture together, and that was the article uh, called Genocide, Falun Gong in China. It was uh, the first time that I understood that forced organ harvesting is not an isolated uh, violation of medical ethics, but it had a, a function, a purpose, and the purpose was to, uh, to destroy a certain group, in this case uh, it was the uh, Falun Gong practitioners, because um, there's no better way to silence a group of people. At the beginning, um, bef when I was uh, thinking about this topic, about, you know, you see the student massacre that was really um, obvious to the world in 1989, and the persecution of Falun Gong that led to the forced organ harvesting, which is not perceived, I, I thought, what, what is the difference here? And uh, then something came up, which I had uh, actually comes from, my, from medical school. And this is when we learned about uh, flies. And the compound of the fly has a certain characteristic. It doesn't have a clear picture, but it, it can detect motion. That's what it's good for. That's why it's difficult to catch a fly. It catches motion. If you move fast, it's very difficult to catch a fly. But if you move slowly, you don't see it, uh, or the, the fly doesn't see the hand coming towards the fly. So if you move slow enough, you can commit a crime that nobody is noticing. So I realized that uh, the Chinese government learned from the student massacre and knew we cannot, they cannot do it in high intensity. They need to proceed in a slower motion and then you have it, a cold genocide. And that is more devastating, 
I would say, than, than other forms of persecution because it, it can happen slowly over, over years, over 20 years, without actually being noticed because it is too slow to, to trigger international reaction. So that, that was, that um, really opened my eyes that China is operating on the, uh, in a way that is very planned. And if you think of a slow-moving destruction and then expand it to other areas in the society, then you see that China is, it is, is not seeking confrontation, but it is slowly infiltrating our society and diluting it with their influence where, where say, you are at universities where you cannot have uh, you know, forums that are crit critical of China. You cannot have this at your, at your university. And all of a sudden, the university finds itself in a situation where it, it is driven to self-censorship because it doesn't want to lose the thousand uh, students from China. So this is like a slow-moving um, influence that is taking, infiltrating everywhere in, in a society. You, f you find this pattern of, uh, uh, of the coal genocide actually in, in many areas, in the economy, business, education. Fascinating. Of course, we've covered this issue of Chinese Communist Party infiltration in the US and in the West and its motives. We have this new film, The Final War, which just premiered that talks about a lot of these things and how there's been this you know, slow 100-year plan to subvert America. I've never thought of it in the context of you know, this cold genocide they describe, which you know, I remember reading that paper, a very, very powerful piece. In the face of all this, right, what can the typical person do? This transplant industry is a combination, or is a reflection of incentives. And doctors earn money from those transplantations. That's their incentive. And uh, even Western media might receive incentives by not reporting about this issue. But then what, what is the incentive of the uh, Chinese government? It's not about money. The, the incentive is to silence Falun Gong so that they cannot con uh, convey their practice and their message which is based on three principles, truthfulness, compassion, forbearance. These are good, good values. You know, the world would benefit from those principles today, but the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want the people to know. So if you want to defeat this purpose of forced organ harvesting, you have to break the silence. So if, if, if uh, the, the people around us would learn more about Falun Gong, would l learn about the persecution, would, would talk about it, would bring it to the social media, etc., the purpose, the purpose of silencing this group would be defeated. One of the things that just strikes me as you're talking here is that, you know, there's this, of course, the first principle that practitioners follow is the truth and that the way that's manifested is in all sorts of different ways which the communist party really doesn't like like for example basically you know exposing communism for what is exposing the crimes of the party 
Uh, that's one one area. Another one is you know whistleblowing around you know COVID things. That was a, that was a big one. A lot of people were were you know persecuted horribly for doing that. You know this this is this is just a couple of examples. If medicine is not able to stop forced organ harvesting, then what will happen with the medical profession? The concept of uh, medicine, the goal of medicine is to, to help a patient, to save a patient. But if someone else is being killed to provide cure to others, then medicine is at a, uh, at a crossroads. So I believe that every medical doctor who is taking his or her profession serious need to look into this. This is not just a topic that should be addressed by transplant surgeons, but by every medical doctor. Well, Dr. Torsten Trey, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Dr. Torsten Trey and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek.